Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, I'm very excited about this podcast. Well, I'm glad you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's great, Kim. I mean, I just, um, it's going to be different because, uh, you know, in all the other podcasts, when we look at a book in the Bible, it, there's basically, it's a message. It has a beginning and an ending. <laughs> With the Psalms, there are 150 stories, and that's how, how we're going to get that into a podcast is going to be a challenge. So, Well, anyway. it's, it is perhaps the most well-known and beloved book of the Bible, certainly of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the Book of Psalms. Well, um, I'm happy to uh, to get, to give it a bash. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> this is going to be a challenge, but we're up for a challenge, so that's good. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's just start with how this portion of Scripture rose to such a lofty place in the hearts and minds of people the world over. You know, it really is a great question because the Psalms, distinct from many of the other books, most of the other books, in fact. They're the words of, uh, of people directed towards God. They articulate man's search for uh, their experience of the living God. And they cover this huge range of human emotions and experiences. The Psalms acted in many ways as a temple hymn book, a devotional guide for people. But the one thing about the Psalms is that it has that a great ability to, to revolutionize our Christian lives and our devotional lives. It teaches us how to pray. It illustrates praise. Uh, it, it, it talks about the longing of the soul. And, you know, the, the other interesting thing, of course, is that the Psalms were never meant to be spoken. They were really meant to be sung. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's good to sing our faith. That, that's really good. So it's a resource for us. Conversations with God. Because life is, is varied, isn't it? There are satisfied seasons of well-being and we, we want to be thankful. And then there are anguished seasons of suffering and death that revoke sentiment, resentment and self-pity and anger. And, there, and then there are those times of surprise when joy breaks into the mundane. Mm. And, and the Psalms encapsulates all of that. So in that sense, yeah, this is an exciting book, even though there are 150 different stories. <laughs> well, you, you describe the Psalms as conversations with God. That that would seem to suggest that it's possible to have a deeply personal relationship with God. Do you believe then that the Psalms actually are meant to promote this kind of relationship? I do. I do. Because the one thing about the Psalms is that they encapsulate, they reflect just everyday life, the pain and the passion of life. Life is such a great gift, and the gift of time is such a wonderful gift. And the joy of living, you know, one one senses that in the Psalms. Deep loss, amazing love can be held together in tension. And uh, some of these Psalms will be Psalms of praise, and some will be Psalms of lament, and again, they're, they're, one is every bit as much part of life as, as the other. There's something real about the Psalms, these voices of faith, these voices echoing again and again to God. Because, you know, there's so much of Christian piety and spirituality that is, that is romantic and unreal in its positiveness and how Christians kind of put on a, a stiff upper lip and, a, you know, a, a face that, that betrays nothing is wrong. And the Hanga Psalm tells us that it's it's not unchristian to be sad at times, or to be distressed, or to be angry, or to be perplexed. And in the midst of the darkness and loss of life, one discovers that God is surprisingly present. Hmm. So I, I don't, I, we can't ignore, nor should we ignore or deny the darknesses of life. But but to, to discover even in the darkness, there's one who is there, and. And the Psalms, you know, they're so rich. In fact, even at times they're subversive of the dominant culture, uh, which oftentimes seeks to cover the darkness. Mm. It tells us that we're not in control of life, but there's someone in every circumstance to whom we can turn, someone who's reliable, someone who's trustworthy. Because the book of Psalms ultimately and finally is a book about hope. Yeah, that's uh, hope. The Old Testament never strikes me as 
particularly hopeful. That feels more of a New Testament idea. The idea of hope mm. in the Psalms is it's true. I think maybe that's one of the things that draws people to them is that they are so hopeful. I tend to think of Psalms as just praise, uh, but we'll talk about that, I know, uh, in a bit. But but hope is not something that I normally think of. Yeah, well, hope is ubiquitous in the book of Psalms, of course. It's filled with with longing and with appreciation. And I mean, we'll get into some of that, of course, but 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 I don't want to say that hope is not is not relegated to the Psalms either. I mean, you know, there's there's hope in Genesis. The world is created with hope and expectation. In the times of bondage in Egypt, you know, there was that living hope always. And then the creation of monarchy, you know, I mean, one could go on. But yes, I, there is hope in the Old Testament. But but you're right, hope permeates the New Testament. But it's so gloriously real here in the Psalms. Let's jump into how best to understand the Psalms. I can't give you a simple answer to that, I'm afraid. You know, there are 150 Psalms, as you know. We can see some things in it that kind of tie them together. For example, the 150 are divided into five books, and you see that in a normal translation. And each book ends with a doxology. So the first book ends uh, with Psalm 41. It ends in doxology. 72 ends in doxology. 89, 105, and the last one, 150. They all end in doxologies. But they're a collection, and and they cover the, 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 the waterfront, so to speak. 73 of them are designated as Davidic, and 12 by his chief musician. 10 are penned, penned by the sons of Korah, which was a guild of temple singers. Two are designated Solomonic, one is Mosaic, uh, one is uh, attributed to Haman, and, and one to Ethan. So th- that all comes to 100, so there are 50 that, that are anonymous. So some of these observations are kind of interesting. Every one of them have a, begins with a title except for 34. And they're called, we call those the orphan psalms. And most of the orphan psalms are in the, are in the final two books from Psalm 91 to 105. But the titles, when they're there, they help us because they describe the character of the psalm. They, they, they describe the musical direction, the author, the source, and the circumstance in which they, the, the psalm may very well have been composed. But but to understand them, I would think that the most salient uh, observation we want to make is simply this, that in essence, I'm being a little simplistic here, but, but in essence, there are two major types of psalms. There are praise psalms and there are psalms of lament. And now the picture, again, is somewhat more complicated than that, but and some of the psalms combine, combine those elements. But essentially, there are two major categories. Psalms of praise, psalms of lament. It does feel like the majority of the psalms would be considered praise. Is that true? Yes, it is true. But there are many different types of praise. We categorize them into general praise, descriptive praise, declarative praise, thanksgiving, and so on. So there are different types, but the God of the Bible is ultimately a God to be praised to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the shorter catechism um, will say, you know, what is the chief end of man? And man's chief end, I think all this, no matter what denomination we belong to, I think this is a wonderful statement. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I remember once an elder in one of my churches approached me and and he said, you know, I love the fact that it says and enjoy him. Because so often we Christians, we praise him, but we don't enjoy him. Mm. And praise will bring joy to our hearts. Oh, that's good. So you've got all these different types of, of, uh, of praise. Um, but they're also enthronement psalms. They're royal psalms. They're songs of Zion. All those are, are considered psalms of praise because they all attribute glory to the creator, to the redeemer, to the guide, to the defender of the faith. And then there are great many laments too. But there's great power in praise because praise is that ability to lift the heart. And, and the book of Psalms shows us how to do it. You know, um, we often, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I heard when I was a young Christian, teenager, whatever, that uh, the way to pray is, um, is to use the word acts, A-C-T-S. Mm, right. That a prayer should be adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. 
Yeah. And I thought that was a great idea until I started to use it. <laughs> and I thought, okay, now let's do adoration. So I said, Lord, I adore you. And that was it. I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to adore him. The book of Psalms opens the door to enable me to do that. Hmm. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's really good. The book of Psalms really does exemplify relationship with the Lord. There's mm-hmm. so, because it's it gives us the example of, I guess, the Davidic uh, relationship. David's relationship with the Lord is so deep. And personal, yeah. And personal, right. I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, what a what a great example. Um, I have to ask you this because uh, it's a totally unfair question, but do you have a favorite psalm? Depends on the day. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, yes, I do, actually. I mean, I, how, can, how can one not choose Psalm 23, for example? Well, that's true. You know, I mean, that's – but Psalm 1 is – I mean, you know, and, and my call, the, the psalm in which God reached from heaven and grabbed hold of my heart and uh, called me into, uh, into service um, was through a psalm. Um, hmm. And it was Psalm 96. Declare his glory among the heathen people. Say among all the nations of the earth that the Lord is king. Oh. And I've always kept that, you know, as my call to, to service. And then, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the Solomonic Psalm of 127 when, you know, it just, if ever I'm, I'm struggling, if ever I'm wondering, you know, if, if something's going to work, you know, when Solomon says, unless the Lord build the house, those who build it labor in vain. And, <laughs> right. and unless the Lord watches over the city, um, the watchmen who guard it, guard it in vain. And, and you know, so, uh, you know, that's been a great comfort to me at times when I wonder, you know, if I'm doing the right thing, because, you know, if there's, uh, if there's enough funding for certain, uh, certain ministry or mission, you know, it's basically, it's God's stuff. It's not mine, you know? And so, mm. If he wants to get it done, he's got to come up with the money and he's got to come up with the, the know-how and he's got to come up with the personnel. And he's got to come up with a plan and I'll right. just go along with him, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I have several. <laughs> yeah, you didn't give me just one. You gave me a no, number. No, I, I, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you mentioned the 23rd Psalm, which is probably the best known. It seems to be almost too well known. Do we lose the depth and richness of the twenty-third psalm just because it's we sort of gloss over it? We know it you too know, well. Yeah, that's a that's yeah, that's fascinating. I remember hearing a story years ago, and it was a party, and there was a, a very well-known actor in the company of the of, of the party, and someone asked him if he would get up and do a dramatic reading or whatever, and so he got up and he spoke the twenty-third psalm. And everyone applauded. How wonderful was that, you see? Mm-hmm. But there was, a, there was an old pastor there, apparently, at this party. And someone uh, turned to him and said, um, would, uh, would you recite the, the psalm? And he felt <laughs> greatly intimidated following the, the, <laughs> this actor. But he got up and he very, very graciously and humbly, he began to recite the 23rd psalm. And when he'd finished, no one applauded. And in the silence, the host got up and said, what we've heard today is an actor reading this psalm, and he knows the psalm. But this pastor knows the shepherd. Mm. Wow. And that was the difference. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Alan, what about some... Other examples of these different kinds of psalms of praise. Well, I've said already that there are different kinds of praise, but mm-hmm. just to give you a general idea, an example of general praise you could find in Psalm 145, which basically is a psalm that begins by saying God is great and therefore greatly to be praised. And then it moves to his main characteristics, grace and mercy and patience and love and goodness and and so on. And then he returns to the theme of God's power and might worthy of praise. And then he talks again of God's characteristics and how those characteristics God uses for those who love him and talks further about his power and 
and then finally declares his praise. I mean, that's kind of the general idea of praise. In descriptive praise, the psalmist talks about a new song. He wants to sing about a new world order that that comes into uh, existence because of God's justice, that God is true and faithful, and that we are to praise him with uh, song, with praise, with music, with playing instruments, and with shouting even. And so he gives a rationale for praise, God who created the world and so forth and so on, and then indicates, culminates by talking about how those who believe in him will benefit by putting their trust in him, how they will be delivered, how they will be protected, how they will receive joy, and how they will have hope and be filled with love. We would call that descriptive praise, describing the nature and the power and the glory of God and what he can do, to how he uses that for our benefit. Declarative praise would be Psalm 23 that we've already mentioned. It begins with, I will, and speaks of God's particular intervention. You know, it's intensely personal. Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And therefore, I will lie down. I will, you know, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and so on and so forth. Thanksgiving, Psalm 40 is a great Thanksgiving psalm. It talks about the psalmist's hope not being disappointed. He expresses his gratitude for the God who has rescued him, the God who hears him, the God who secures him, the God who surprises him, hmm. the new things that God puts into his life and how this new life is grounded on his reliance upon God, his obedience to God, and how he wants to tell the world how wonderful this God is. So, I mean, and and, and then there's communal thanksgiving. You know, in Psalm 124, you've got how God is on our side and, and therefore you have an invitation to praise him because he, the, God is the ground of our hope. So these are kind of some of the main kinds of praise psalms. And then you've got enthronement psalms, Psalm 96 that I've already mentioned, one of my favorites. You've got the royal psalms where there's praise of a nursery as well as a heavenly king. Songs of Zion sung by the, by the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Hmm. So these are the categories of, uh, of praise that we, would, uh, that we would categorize, you know, so that it's, Praise takes many forms. It, it speaks to different things. The benefits of belonging, the, the glory of God, the inherent nature of God. All those would be, we would consider different kinds of, of psalms of praise. So when a person reads the psalms, I think to be conscious, you know, what, what exactly is, is God being praised for here? Mm. You know, is it his nature? Is it his, his action? Uh, how, how, does, how does this praise impact my life? Those are the kind of questions I think that would help us better understand praise so that we don't get to a point where we just say, God, I adore you. Right. It sounds like a lot of structure, intentional by the Lord, of course, but it sounds like a lot of structure within the Psalms. Is that a, is that, are we reading into that or is that, or, or are we reading out of it? Is that an inductive thing or a deductive thing? No, it's an inductive thing, I think, because, you know, you see uh, some of the Psalms do carry a, a similar kind of format. But again, not all Psalms conform to a format. Even when we get to the Psalms of Lament, for example, there are different kinds of Lament Psalms. They fill your heart with pathos. And, and many of them, many will begin with a lament, but finish with a, with a praise. Mm. That's very, very significant. And then there's psalms of lament that, um, you know, you mean they, they, one encounters a problem of, in life, a, a complication, and, uh, and one wants to complain to God. The psalms is open. I mean, God is big enough to hear our complaints. Yeah. And the psalms reflect that, a motivation. Some psalms uh, are, are really, how can I say, they're kind of problematic. We call them imprecatory psalms. And those imprecatory psalms are, can be, you know, the psalmist is not always at his best there. Mm. Those psalms call down judgment upon one's enemies, for example. And they're just filled with anger. Do you have an example of one? Yeah, the best yeah. examples would be 137, 138. 137, for example, occurs when the psalm emerges from the Babylonian exile. And it calls for resistance. It calls for long-term hope. Begins with a complaint. And in those opening verses, it sets the scene of ineffable sadness, humiliation, abandonment. And that's what the, that's where the people felt. You know, they felt God, God had abandoned them. 
And, and you know, there are times in our lives when, when that's certainly the case. And, and the, the lovely thing about Psalm 137 is that, you know, from the, the initial complaint in the first three verses, the next three verses talk about times when things were better. And, and the memory becomes precious. We remember what it used to be like, Lord. And then in the last three verses, because there are nine verses in the, in the psalm, it's the, the imprecation, calling down the, the judgment of God upon their enemy. Um, hmm. There can be no accommodation for the enemy. Otherwise, there will never be any homecoming. I don't think it's one of the noblest aspirations <laughs> that the psalmist has expressed, but, you know, that's, it's raw emotion. That's that's the thing about imprecatory psalms, um, or these two in particular, 137, 139. So yeah, this is raw emotion, and there's something real about that. You know, it's not just kind of putting on airs. And if your heart is breaking, you know, some people, you know, they'll go to church meetings and they go through all the motions. Their heart is breaking. Something is is weighing heavily on their heart, and and they smile, and you know, yeah. As if it's sinful to to not be happy. Wearing a mask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But they do raise difficult theological questions at times. Psalm 88 is, uh, represents the cry of a believer whose life is in a mess. It opens with an urgent appeal. The psalmist complains basically in the first nine verses that God isn't speaking to him. Mm. He's praying and there's no answer coming from heaven. And so in the next four verses... He asks six rhetorical questions, and still there's no answer. And then when he gets to the end of the psalm, he accuses God, you know, because he still doesn't hear anything. And so nothing is working. So Psalm 88 is just an amazing psalm. God doesn't answer, and this isn't working. This, this faith thing isn't working. Sounds like me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes life is like that, isn't it? Even when... Even when it seems like utter darkness descends on us, yeah. we still have to do with God who stands within the shadows. And the, the amazing thing is that the psalmist, even though there was an answer, he still talks to God in the darkness. And even though God appears silent, it doesn't stop the psalmist from talking to him. Right. <laughs> You've got to love that. Psalm 109 is kind of like that too, because the psalmist is yearning for vengeance in Psalm 109. He wants God to take his side. And so he appeals to the name of God, the covenant of God, the compassion of God, the love of God. But the body of the psalm is a song of hatred. Hmm. He's been badly treated. He, he wants a special prosecutor. He's, he's already determined what the verdict needs to be. And in his rage, he turns to God. And he says, vengeance belongs to God. But it belongs to God in God's time and in God's way. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, what, what we learn from that, I think, is that anger can be either repressed or it can be acted out. And here the psalmist acts it out. And it's okay to act it out. He channels the anger effectively, if you will. But in all these psalms of lament, my sense is that even though you've got Psalm 88 and Psalm 109 that we've spoken about, these psalms of lament recognize that there's no hope outside of God. Hmm. And Psalm 90, for example, the psalmist extols the sovereignty of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place for all generations, before the mountains were born, before you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. So he starts there. That's his, his start. And then he goes on to talk about how we are destined for dust. You know, the days of our years are 70. If, if by strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow passes quickly, we fly away. And then the pivotal point of the psalmist, he says, you know, give me a heart of wisdom. Um, he wants to have a wise heart so that he can discern the will and the purposes of God that will lead to joy and gladness. So he starts with God's majesty. He moves to God's faithfulness. And he talks about how that's the only hope that we can possibly ever live in. So these psalms of lament, I love these psalms of lament. They're very special. It feels like they almost go from a point or a place of despair to a place of understanding. You know, that's, yeah, that's really, really true. The Psalms of Lament don't fit into one category. But, but the classic 
example of lament begins with a plea and ends with a praise. Mm. And the plea usually begins with, you know, something like, oh, God, you know, and then the complaint comes and he describes the situation. And then he's confessing his trust in God and he wants God to act. Uh, He gives reasons for God to act. And then he calls for judgment and he even is accusatory towards God. And then of a sudden, wow, he starts praising. He's aware that he's been heard, that God is keeping his promises, and he praises God for the answer. Hmm. And, and that's the classic model, if you will, of the, of the lament psalms. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at them, and I would encourage, you know, our, our listeners when they read the psalms, psalms of lament in particular, have a look at where the turn is, takes place. Where, where something, something transpires between the plea and the praise to make the movement possible. Hmm. In Psalm 13, for example, that occurs between verses 4 and 5. In Psalm 22, it occurs between verses 21 and 22. And that, that last Psalm, Psalm 22, gives us amazing insight into the fact that Jesus used that Psalm on the cross. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting the opening of Psalm 22. So the question is, did Jesus know Psalm 22? Well, that's kind of a silly question. You know, of course he knew Psalm 22. I mean, there's a sense in which he authored Psalm 22. Right. So he was obviously aware of it. And Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion in great detail a thousand years before it happened. That's quite amazing. Wow. And the psalm ends with the words, it is finished. The Hebrew can be translated, it is finished. And it talks about, you know, the, the time when, when, you know, he cried, I'm thirsty, you know, on the cross. Yeah. And how he was, he, he was uh, speared and so forth. And it is a cry of lament. But in verse 21, 22, it turns into a, Psalm of praise. So the question then is, when Jesus was on the cross and he uttered those words of Psalm 22, was he pleading or was he praising? Hmm. Now, the church has always assumed that he was pleading. But I want to open the idea in the minds of our listeners. Maybe that's to misunderstand what Jesus was saying. Could he possibly have been praising instead. Wow. Because, you know, no one, when David penned those words, no one has ever said that God forsook David. Right. But we uh, we say, using the same words, that God forsook Jesus. Well, did he? And why in that psalm, in verse 24 of that psalm, does it actually say that God will not turn away from his son? So... Interesting, these, uh, these theological uh, ideas that, that emerge from these remarkable songs. I think I'm drawn to the songs of lament because they feel real. We all have circumstances that bring us some form of despair. And so it's true to the human condition. And then the, that it evolves to praise is such a beautiful picture of what our Lord does for us, what Jesus does for us, what God does for us. Yeah, I mean, my feeling would be that if Jesus could, in the midst of the agony on the cross and the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the horrendous humiliation, if in the midst of that Jesus Christ could praise the Father, the echo of that encouragement I think comes down through the centuries and we hear it in the midst of our anguish and pain in our life which was nothing like Christ's yeah and if he can do that in the midst of his pain how much more will we be able to do it in ours absolutely is there a psalm of lament perhaps it's 22 but that would be equal to the psalm of praise of 23 yeah, um, 
Yeah, I think I think 137, for example, is is one of those uh, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion. I think the pathos of that is absolutely gorgeous. Mm. But yeah, I'm always, always drawn to Psalm 22 because I find it totally intriguing because I think maybe we've misunderstood that, that what we call the cry of dereliction on the cross. And we've always assumed that God turned his back and yet the Psalm says he, that particular Psalm says he doesn't. And, and you know, there's so many, there, there's so many questions that it raises. So Psalm 22 intrigues me perhaps more than any other psalm. But the pathos of Psalm 137 is just absolutely lovely. And yet, you know, you don't see the psalmist at his best in that psalm by any stretch. In the praise songs, you have a number of different sort of structural types. Are there also various types of lament? Yeah, the laments can be deeply personal or they can be national so there can be communal or national lament and and there can be a great range of emotion um so that you've got these imprecatory psalms for example at 137 139 where they touch this raw emotion they embody heartache and dread and fear yeah you see that in 88 and 109 those would be the major kind of categories personal and national and imprecatory psalms but it's the cause of the of the lament that fascinates the reader, I think, right? In, t- in trying to determine how to categorize them. Interesting, this idea of national laments. What? How are they different from the personal laments? A national lament would be associated with a public disaster, usually. Hmm. It also begins with you know, oh God, kind of thing, and then you have the lament, and then the trust. You know, so the format is basically the difference, and the question, why? would be raised. So for example, in Psalm 74, which is a, a national lament, the temple had been violated and it causes the Sabbath who is feeling abandoned to protest and to grieve. And so the psalmist speaks to the parties involved in the travesty, the enemy who caused it, the people who suffer it, and the God who must deal with it. So he appeals to God to act. He rehearses the circumstances of the tragedy Uh, He asks the question, why, God, do you not intervene? He acknowledges God's power. And then comes the petition. He actually tells God what he must do and why he must do it. So it's clear that the loss of the temple is not equivalent to the loss of faith. Faith is directed towards God and not the temple. So in these personal laments, often faith is, is called into question. National laments, that's never the case. It's usually some event, some structure, such as a temple, Hmm. some army, you know, some military thing, whatever the case might be. Of the 150 psalms, they seem to fall into either psalms of praise or psalms of lament. Are there others? Those two are the major, major categories, praise and and lament. But no, there, you know, I said it was a little simplistic because there are other kinds of psalms. There are these other psalms, are often termed wisdom psalms, providing instruction for right living, moral behavior, uh, extolling the virtue of keeping the commandments of God. Some are prophetic, some are messianic. Hmm. So for example, instruction psalm. Psalm 1 is a beautiful psalm of instruction. Instruction in wisdom, you've got Psalm 12, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. Those that are prophetic, 22, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, prophecies of the death of Christ on the cross. But you've got 41, 55, 69, 89, 95, 109, 110. These will all, all be prophetic. But, you know, Psalm 1, for example, these instruction, it's it's one of the best known psalms of the law. And it sets the tone for the entire psalms, for the book of psalms. It announces the primary agenda for worship as obedience, a life of obedience results in happiness and well-being. It asserts that there's no middle ground. You either observe God's law or you, you disobey God's law. And if you observe God's law, you're blessed. And if you disobey, you're judged. You're, ju- you're, you're destroyed. You're, you perish. And, and, you know, it's only six verses. The first three verses are those who are blessed. And the last three verses are those who are destroyed. And it's as simple as that. 
We've mentioned Psalm 14. The psalmist reflects on someone whose life is out of focus, doesn't acknowledge God, he's corrupt, he exploits others, but declares nonetheless that God is still in control. You don't mess with God. It's his world at the last. And he's on the side of the righteous. And he cares for victims. And they're going to be vindicated. So these are the kind, we would call these wisdom psalms. You know, the prophetic psalms we've talked about, they talk about Christ's suffering, his claims, uh, his priestly ministry, his description as the son of man, his coming judgment and redemption, all of that. And there are many, many psalms that are prophetic in nature. But again, we call them wisdom, wisdom psalms. So, yeah, it isn't just lament and praise, but that that's most of them. But even in some of the examples that you just gave, I would maybe think that they would also be, or they would also fall into the category of praise or lament. Like yeah, there'd be crossover. Yeah, 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 yes, there are. One doesn't want to be too simplistic, but in general, we see that there's some psalms that are primarily praise. Hmm. Those who are primarily lament, even though they contain praise. If you try to categorize them, you know, one doesn't even need to categorize them. You just, <laughs> you just take them as they are, but they reflect different moods. The psalms of lament obviously reflect an entirely different mood from general praise, for example. Sure. Uh, now, the Psalms have been referred to as Hebrew poetry. Is that a consensus among biblical scholars? Yes, it would be. Yeah, It would be, yeah. yeah. Uh, it doesn't look like what I would maybe generally call poetry. You might qualify some as blank verse. Can you describe what makes this book poetry? Yeah, it's not poetry in the Western, uh, in the Western mind. You know, I mean, I, I've often said... Um, our poetry tends to rhyme. I mean, I know there's such thing as blank verse and so forth, right. but you know, going growing up in high school and and college and so forth, we learned poetry and most of it rhymed. You know, yeah. uh, I particularly like the 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 Irish one. You know about um, uh, about the the drunk. Um, <laughs> no, um, here we go. Twas an evening in November, as I very well remember. I was walking down the street in drunken pride, and my feet were all a flutter, and I fell into the gutter. And a pig came up and lay down by me side. As I lay there in the gutter, thinking thoughts I dare not utter, a fair young colleen happened to pass along the way, said she, you can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses. And at that, the pig got up and walked away. So <laughs> you know, that's kind of Western poetry. So no, Hebrew poetry is not going to rhyme. There is no rhyme. However, there is rhythm in it. There is rhythm. Mm. In the sense that... Um, not in the sense that words sound have a similar sound, but it really has to do with the number of kind of syllabic beats that a phrase might have. A line of Hebrew poetry is usually broken into two or more parts. Each part is what we call a stick, S-T-I-C-H. And a stick contains a number of stressed words. Let me give you an example. Um, and, and again, we lose this in the translation from Hebrew to English. That's part of the problem. Okay. But let me kind of give you an idea. Psalm 96 opens up, sing to Yahweh a new song. So there are three stresses there. Sing to Yahweh all the earth, three stressed words. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. So you've got three, 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 three. That's mm. what we call a three plus three metered psalm. Now you can have two plus two and... Three plus two and three plus two plus two and two plus two plus two. And I could go on all day. <laughs> I could go on all day with this, you know. But so in that sense, it's kind of, it's the number of beats in a line, not how they rhyme. And then the other notice, no, thing that we've got to notice about uh, Hebrew poetry is that its unique character consists not only in the meter, but also in the content. And the lines are usually arranged in couplets where the second line relates to the first line. It's what we call parallelism. Hmm. And it's a means of emphasizing a message. And we have defined three different kinds of parallelism. When two lines convey the same idea, we call it synonymous parallelism. Example, Yahweh reigns, he's clothed in majesty. First line, Yahweh reigns. 
second line, he's clothed in majesty. They mean the same thing. Psalm 77, I consider the days of old. I remember the years long ago. Hmm. Second line is exactly the same as the first line. So we call that, that's synonymous parallelism. But then there are some Psalms where the second line contrasts with the first line. For example, in Psalm 1, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So you've got an opposite there. And then you've got, we call that antithetic parallelism. Uh, I don't want to get, you know, it's it's not valuable getting too technical about it. But at the same time, you know, it's it's important to understand when the first line says the same as the second or the says the opposite of the second. Because then the third kind of parallelism we call synthetic parallelism, where the thought of the first is amplified by the second line. For example, in Psalm 40, I first line says, I waited patiently for Yahweh. And the second line says, he turned to me and heard my cry. So the second line is a, an expansion of the, of the first line. That's important to understand, for example, in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. That's the first line. Second line is, why are you so far removed from me? Now, the question then is, being removed, far removed, is not the same as forsakenness. Right. So, so it, it, it sheds light. It's, it's obviously synonymous parallelism, but it sheds light on the meaning of the first line. Now, there's some, some psalms begin each line with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, there's oh, several psalms that do that. 9, 10, 25, 34, 111, 112, 119, 145. It's an acrostic, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then other psalms, you know, they have verses. We call them stanzas, of course. They can be small or long, either way. So I don't know if that helps or not. Um, I think it helps in the sense that, number one, we're saying that don't read Hebrew poetry the way you read Western poetry, because this is not about rhyming. And we don't, it's not that they rhymed in Hebrew and they don't rhyme in English. It's got nothing to do with that. They just never rhyme. That's the first thing. It's the number of beats in the bar, if you will, uh, in the line. And the second thing we want to observe, which is, I think, more important, is the relationship between the lines. Does the second line give us better insight into the meaning of the first line? So no limericks in, in the Psalms. You know, um, you know, I always thought that God was Irish until I, uh, you know, <laughs> until I started reading the Psalms. <laughs> okay, well, is there a way to summarize what the Book of Psalms teaches? Uh, how it sees life, God, religion, the future? You know, I, um, I wish that were easier to answer. I mean, because the Psalms, they cover so much. Yeah. But I think you I think we can extract certain things uh, from it. It's a, in other words, your question is a huge question because there's yeah. 150 stories. You know, I mean, if there's a way to break it down, is it possible to draw from the corpus of the of the Psalter some salient ideas about certain things? So are there certain things that interest you that you would want to know about or or you think our listeners might want to know about well i mean i think ultimately a lot of what we do with the psalms i think is we tend to read into them instead of read out from them i think we tend to to approach the psalms from a more deductive point of view than an inductive point of view is there a way to better access these is there a better way to look at these these 150 stories yeah yeah yeah, I, I mean, I, I think one, one needs to try to get into the mind of the psalmist or the psalmists to understand their, their, their hurt, to understand their circumstance, to, um, to relive in many ways, to move into a position of empathy. And I think, I think you begin to see a commonality between them. For example... What do the psalmist think about God? Well, they love him. They all will speak of his power and his kingship and his kingly 
his enthronement, if you will, in the heavens. Mm. Zion is his habitation, that, and yet he is, he is to be found everywhere. They all unite in talking about his, how he is forgiving and how he hears those who pray to him. Um, how he is righteous and merciful and just, all those things. And ultimately, communion with him is the most, is the greatest good that man can possibly experience. And then they'll talk about the world in which we live in terms of how, how God made it. He's the creator God. The universe mm. is his handiwork. Uh, and how God, when he created the world, ultimately the pinnacle of his creation was, was us. You know, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you think of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and cattle, animals of the field, birds of the sky, fish of the sea. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So, you know, that would be their their common view of God and the world and of man. Well, man is perish, will perish. I mean, will die. You know, Psalm 30, 39 says, Yahweh, show me my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how frail I am. In 49, man, despite his riches, won't endure. He's like animals that perish. Psalm 89, remember how short my time is. What vanity you've created in all the children of man. What man is he who shall live and not see death? Who shall deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And so on. Man will live and man will die. Psalm 103, for he knows how we are made. He remembers that we're dust. And then, then he goes on to say that, uh, you know, the psalmist in Psalm 6, for example, he says there's, in death, there's no memory of you. He'll give you thanks, he says to God, when, when they're dead. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do the departed spirits rise up and praise you? Is your loving kindness declared in the grave? The dead don't praise Yahweh. So that's, that would be Psalm 115, for example. And then there is indication that there's life beyond death. Psalm 49, God will redeem my soul from the power of, of Sheol. He will receive me. Hmm. Or Psalm 73, you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom do I have in heaven? There is no one on earth whom I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, I mean, you, you, one can reach commonalities through, through these things and yeah. how man must meet the requirements of God. Do you see that in Psalm 15 and 24 and 34? And how God is the greatest thing in their lives. I love this part. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. 17, as for me, I'll see your face in righteousness. I'll be satisfied. You know, it just goes on. Uh, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 23. One thing I've asked of the Lord and that will I seek after that I may dwell in Yahweh's house all the days of my life to see his beauty, to inquire in his temple. So again and again, how precious is your loving kindness, God? As the deer pants for water brooks, my soul pants after you, Psalm 42. God, you are my God. I will earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you and so on, Psalm, Psalm 63. So even though the Psalms are so varied, there's a sense in which the Psalms sums up this, what we might call the theology of the Psalms. It's a difficult subject because it's raw emotions. Yeah. So, yeah. But ultimately, hugely relatable. There's a lot of parallelism. If we want to, we can find such deep parallels to our own lives, to our own experience, our lived experience, and where we are and where we're headed and where God is in relationship to all that. Yeah, that's really, that's really true. I think the one thing that, that one needs to bear in mind when one reads the Psalms and studies the Psalms and, and, and just bathes oneself in the wonder of them and, and identifies with them and 
and reaches out in, in sympathy to, to understand what, where, where the psalmist is in the given situation, is the psalms are written in poetic form for the purpose of appealing to the human heart. Mm. You know, this is yeah. different from discourse and from prose. This is different from apocalyptic material. This is different from parabolic material. Poetry, the reason why the writer, why the writer would use poetry is to appeal to the emotions. And that's why the, the book of Psalms is so beloved um, and has been beloved for so long. Because it's uh, like few other books, it speaks to the longing of the human heart, mm. whether in pain or whether in joy. And there's something for everyone in these pages. That's the yeah. amazing thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> Alan, thank you. Another wonderful look at scriptures. And um, you've given me and I know all of us a lot to think about and consider when we read through the Psalms. So let's talk about our next podcast. Where are we headed? Well, I was thinking that maybe we should complete the wisdom books. Okay. And it occurs to me that there's one book still remaining. We've covered Job. We've covered Psalms. We've covered Ecclesiastes. And we've covered the Song of Solomon. There's one outstanding, which is the Book of Wisdom. Because each of the, the wisdom books seeks to answer the question, what is the meaning of something? Ecclesiastes, what's the meaning of life? Song of Solomon, what's the meaning of love? Job, what is the meaning of suffering? And the Psalms, what does it mean to be in relationship with God? And I think Proverbs is, what does it mean to be wise? Can we be wise? I thought maybe we should just bring that to a, a conclusion, if you will, yeah. so that the books of wisdom will be complete. That sounds great. So next up, Proverbs. Please be sure to come to us with your thoughts and comments and questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.